to build a national massive monopoly that is free to the consumer, tons of people are using and is monetizing through another channel, I think it's like enormously valuable. It could be, I mean, it could easily become like the biggest company in the care industry by mile. Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast, brought to you by Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina, that helps founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies start up, operate, get funded, and exit. So whether you're already an entrepreneur or want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success, this podcast is for you. I am so excited today. Uh, I have on Neil Shaw from Care Yaya. Neil, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Trevor, thanks for having me. I understand that you may not have initially started your career as an entrepreneur. So what was some of your early professional experience? Um, sure. So I actually, I started Care Yaya because of very personal uh, caregiving experiences. You know, I previously had another career, caregiving. I just fell into caregiving, actually, uh, personally within my family. And that really created a lot of motivation to build a better solution because I saw and experienced the challenges firsthand. But to give you a quick background on myself, you know, I grew up in North Carolina, uh, went to UNC Chapel Hill on a full ride, um, uh, later uh, finished my education at the University of Pennsylvania. And I really wanted to go into business, work on Wall Street. Um, you know, so in my early 20s, I moved to New York City, did investment banking. Uh, by my late 20s, I became a partner at a, a multi-billion dollar private equity slash hedge fund. And then by my early 30s, uh, one of the investors in that fund backed me to start my own fund. So I was pretty much, you know, in the investment side of things, investing uh, in companies across a variety of industries, including healthcare, technology, uh, grew my own fund. At 31, I launched with 10 million of investor capital. By 35, I was running 250 million. You know, I was on a trajectory to just become a fund manager. And then suddenly in my mid-30s, a bunch of caregiving experiences happened. Um, you know, initially for my grandfather, who became severely ill, uh, went through uh, dementia, uh, kidney failure. Um, uh, cancer, uh, and then end-of-life care. And I saw the toll it took on my mother, um, who was an educated um, woman, and it basically had to leave the workforce uh, to handle the care and the difficulty in navigating the care industry. Um, and then at the peak of my career, at 35, my wife became severely ill with uh, fairly aggressive cancer, um, multiple hospitalizations. At one point, it was in the ICU under a medical coma. Um, and I was primary caregiver while I was running my fund. Um, and, you know, I found it very, very stressful and difficult. Um, I found the uh, difficulty in getting care help. Um, you know, we were li living in New York City at the time and, you know, neither one of us are from there. So not family around. And, you know, basically at that point kept taking sabbaticals from my work, um, and realized that there's gotta be a better way. Um, I spending months and months at the hospitals, I became really woke up to the idea of like how many people are dealing with this. And I just became obsessed with, um, you know, there's got to be better solution. You know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so so it sounds like it's a very kind of kind of a personal origin story to to the to the business. But you know, a lot of people yeah. I think feel like they go through these experiences and they have that sense of need. But then, how do you take that and that kind of make it into a reality? What were? How did you go from kind of that personal experience to actually making it into a business? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, initially, it's, I spent a lot of time, you know, because I came from like a investment and research site. So I'm a very research oriented person. So kind of sat there and thought through, okay, what is broken in the care market and where the greatest need is? And then where can I do something to address the need? So oftentimes, when you're starting something, you're trying to start as simple as possible, as fast as possible, serve an unmet need. And I found the biggest unmet need in the care economy 
is in the home care side. You know, the, the U.S. has some of the best medical care in the world. Um, you know, I mean, some of these hospitals, even in North Carolina, actually, we have some of the best medical care between Duke Health, UNC Health, Wake Med, et cetera. Um, but 95% of what's happening, you know, through somebody's care journey, whether it's aging, end of life, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, cancer, et cetera, 95% plus of the care is happening at home. You know, it's not the clinical treatment. It's not the drugs. It's not the surgeries. And that's where I felt the biggest opportunity, the biggest need was, the biggest source of family caregiver strain and burnout. So I basically decided to focus on that market and then spend probably, you know, I'd say almost a couple of years researching kind of how the care industry works. Um, initially, I thought I would kind of just do private equity deals uh, in the industry and then kind of buy and then fix. Um, so I actually approached a bunch of companies, try to buy them just with my own capital and raising capital do it. And then it later realized that was very inefficient. The industry was completely broken. Um, the last wave of innovation had happened really in the 1980s and 1990s. And it became growingly obvious to me that, you know, this is a $200 billion annual industry, the formal care economy, right, of home care. But at, when you add up informal care in the gray market, it's a $400 plus billion industry. And, you know, Melinda Gates Foundation, Pivotal Ventures has a lot of uh, statistics around this. Given how, how large this economy is, I was shocked that the existing businesses in it were so old school, low tech, 1980s, 1990s type of businesses. Um, so it just became clear to me that instead of buying anything and trying to fix it, the right approach was to build first principles thinking, you know, what would you build if you were to start something brand new today without all the baggage of kind of how the industry's done things, you know, for the last 20, 30 years. And I also, it became glaringly obvious to me that the care consumer was about to change. You know, a lot of people who are managing care, let's say for the elders, um, people managing care are the midlife adult children of aging parents. You know, these are also people managing care for spouses with serious illness, people managing care for midlife people with disabilities, uh, even for children with special needs. And I think that as this midlife care consumer enters the care market, they don't want a 1980s way, 1990s way of doing things. You know, um, they want a Uber, you know, they want an Airbnb. They've grown up using these tech platforms that they view are better, cheaper, faster. And solutions like that don't exist. Um, so at that point, after a couple of years of research, it was like, all right, I'm just going to go go all out and build one. I think that, yeah, the timing is right for a massive scale solution that offers economies of scale, that offers actually just great quality, convenience of booking, you know, bringing even technology into the care um, experience. So, yeah, I think it's kind of like a, it's a cool opportunity that I think wouldn't have existed maybe 10 years ago. No, I, I think that's interesting with student analysis because it does make a whole lot of sense that the, the, the people who's going to use this type of a technology may not have been at the age where uh, they needed that kind of care yet in their lives. So the timing was kind of important. You were talking about kind of when you first were getting started, you did a lot of research, kind of laid the groundwork for it. What's the next step then after that? How, how do you then again, what's the next step after you've done your research, you realize that this is a need What's the next step? Yeah, the next step was just start building, you know, start building the bare bones, minimum viable solution that you think anyone will find a benefit from. So, you know, spend a bunch of time talking to people, realize this kind of gap need in the market. You know, we started with like low acuity, just companion care, you know, and we were like, okay, there's a lot of people who just need somebody to sit with their family member. Let's say in an archetype, midlife people who are working, demanding jobs whose mom or dad has gotten a diagnosis of early or even mid-stage Alzheimer's or dementia. A lot of times the son or daughter doesn't want to leave mom or dad alone, uh, but they don't need a nurse. You know, They don't need clinical stuff going on, injections, et cetera. They just want somebody nice to be around. You know, We kind of saw this was a big need. This was a need the care industry was not serving very well, was serving at the high end at very absurd rates. Um, and even then, the care experience was pretty mixed. 
and then probably leaving behind 85, 90% of the people who needed the help. You know, so we kind of started at that market and it was like, okay, how do you build something in a very simplistic way um, to serve that population well? So it was kind of like minimum viable product and then launch that test, iterate accordingly. So I'd say kind of, you know, once I concluded through the research that the entry point was to build instead of buy, um, then at that point, it was just like jump in and like there's a bias to action, you know, just start doing stuff. And then you start learning very quickly through doing, okay, this works, this doesn't, people like this, people don't like this. And then you're just constantly iterating and adjusting. So yeah, it was basically just jump in both feet. And what were some of those early challenges as you were kind of building out that that first part of the product or kind of rolling this out? What what were some of those challenges? Sure. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges was initially, you know, so uh, I don't know how much your listeners know about the model, but um, on Carrier, the caregivers are all healthcare focused students at uh, some of the best universities in our area and then gradually growing across the country. One of the biggest challenges was I didn't initially set out to do that. So initially we thought that through a tech-enabled care matching, uh, would be able to get um, traditional caregivers also matched. And one of the biggest challenges was in the probably first four to six months of the launch, the thing was flopping big time. You know, and basically the tech proficiency of the traditional care industry worker is extremely low. I just say it to say it. You know, it's like I think that there's a need for upskilling, but the simple ability to accept, a match, take sessions, etc. Uh, was just not that reliable. And at that point, it was almost like, why even bother with the solution? You know, that that it's fine. Don't get me wrong. It's uh, affordable, but it's affordable with a notable quality drop, uh, which would make a solution harder to adopt for the mass market. But thankfully, through that and through a lot of iterating and thinking, realized there was a massive tech-savvy population that was partly in the care economy, but mostly unengaged, um, which could be unlocked through a gig economy solution. And so through that first, I'd say, six months of learning, that's how we kind of decided, let's hone in on this narrow market of users. You know, if you can't think about it, we're a two-sided marketplace. So the users are people booking care, but the users are users, suppliers, whatever you want to call it, are also the people delivering care. And we have to build for both sides. And we found that um, on the people supplying care, um, it was um, unambiguous that student caregivers were so tech proficient um, it was just a complete ease of use on their end. The reliability was through the roof. And then you're like, okay, now we found product market fit um, in terms of like who's going to be the care supply on the platform. So let's just super focus on that and then like kind of not think about anything else. Yeah, well, and I think we touched on this a little bit earlier, but one of the big challenges for, I think, caregiving generally, but also just kind of tech enabled caregiving is how do you kind of trust who's coming into your home? How do you trust who's coming in to take care of mom or dad? Um, and, and so how have you kind of addressed that challenge? How do you, you vet your caregivers and kind of put people at ease about who's coming over? Yeah, great question. Great question. So I'd say, you know, first of all, thankfully, I mean, we're operating against like a pretty low bar competitively, um, you know, not to kind of like knock the existing care industry, but you know, if you've used it yourself at all, you might know kind of what I'm talking about, um, that the care industry and, and partly it's not even the care worker's fault, but I'd say the traditional care industry, which I would say is our kind of like main competition is very poor experience for not just the family, but also the caregiver. I don't think they treat the caregivers that well. Um, you know, I think it's, um, you know, you're charging families 35 bucks an hour and on average, North Carolina caregivers get paid eleven fifty an hour. So if you kind of think about it is that the middleman care company is extracting the vast majority of the families paying for themselves for marketing costs, 
profit, whatever you want to call it, right? There's a high overhead and everything. So the underlying care worker who's going into the person's home and doing 99.9% of the work is walking away with 11.50 an hour. So what does that result in in the traditional care industry? Anyone that can get out gets out. You know, you can get a job anywhere in retail, at Walmart, at McDonald's, whatever, you're out. So you're bare, and, and the care companies are also run ruthlessly uh, with this mindset that somebody asked for a 25 cent an hour raise, go. You know, so it's really um, a tough situation. And then all these care companies are talking about caregiver shortages. I'm like, well, look how you're treating your workers. That's why there's caregiver shortage, right? That, you know, you're keeping all the economics for yourself. So you almost can't blame the caregivers that are there because whoever stays in the industry is like, couldn't get out. Um, and frankly, I feel bad for a lot of the traditional economy caregivers where, um, many of them are midlife people. Many of them are like single mothers. You know, they have a couple of kids to feed this, these wages are not sustainable. Um, so many of them have to take second shifts, work in a food line things like that. So I think basically the, the quality of the traditional care experience is very, very poor. The way that the, um, care companies, you know, kind of build trust is really they just say, hey, I've interviewed these people, I've background checked these people. Okay, that's it. But the dark underbelly of care is a lot of bad things are happening in the care sessions. If you kind of think about it, and this is not really covered that much in media, but I think for people who are managing these care experiences in their family, they could tell you so many stories about, you know, can you imagine leaving a 75, 80 year old person who's cognitively declining, you know, one on one with someone um, that you don't really know that well, the care company is kind of treating them just like, you know, commoditized labor, a lot of times there's theft, sometimes there's elder abuse, sometimes there's neglect, a lot of bad things are happening in the traditional care industry. The reason I explain all this as background is that that's what we're up against, right? Now, take the, what Carriaya is doing, going into UNC Chapel Hill, right, which is already a bar of you had to get into the school, then seeing who here is going to medical school, physician assistant school, nursing school, physical therapy. So not just the best of the best, but also aspiring to graduate careers. Okay, you're going to be in this program because you're going to get hours and paid experience towards your future graduate education. The alignment of non-monetary incentives is unbelievable. Then monetary incentives. You're making 15 to 18 bucks an hour. Guess what? Zero middleman fee. The family is paying you and you are getting the entire amount. So, I mean, basically the user experience from the caregiver is through the roof. The caregivers love it. There's full transparency. They feel like I'm doing all the hard work and I'm keeping all the rewards of my hard work. Uh, we are background checking all the caregivers. We are one-on-one interviewing all the caregivers. Uh, and we have a presence at these schools that is backed by professors, departments, pre-health advisors, blah, blah. We've also built out an entire pathway program. So I'm proud to say I've personally written so many letters of recommendation for the caregivers to medical school, physician assistant school, nursing programs, physical therapy, et cetera. Uh, we connect them with advisors. We help them shadow doctors, nurses, physician assistants. Uh, we help them with essay writing. So it's almost like the caregivers are being treated so well. And I think that's a critical thing that a lot of people in the care industry miss is that it's not just how you treat the family that's receiving the care. If you treat the caregiver well and do a lot for them, guess what? shocking care is better you know and like proud to say carry we've had thousands of care sessions 4.9 out of five star reviews um i mean it's like literally people in the industry can't believe it you know the average care care review is 3.2 in the industry thing online platforms like care.com believe it or not is 1.3 stars out of five stars you know so care industry the bar is so low it's like a terrible industry from a consumer standpoint and from a caregiver standpoint and i think we're, we're building something that the caregivers just inherently love by just slashing the middleman fee both sides of the marketplace are just ending up much better off. 
Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and I do want to kind of talk through the, the, the fee issue a little bit mm-hmm. later. But I, I, I want to ask you kind of, it sounds in some respects, great result, kind of caregivers get cared for. My question is, how does that really scale as you kind of move from, you know, a couple yeah. of universities to nationwide, got all these different spaces? What, how do you think about the challenges of scaling that kind of an operation? Yeah, yeah, great question. I think this is like one of the fundamental questions that I think that we're going to be thinking about over the next year. The opportunity is obvious, you know, from a scaling perspective of how big the thing could be. And it's like blowing up, by the way. I mean, between you and I and like obviously your listeners, um, but we spread from a couple of universities in the triangle, you know, we're at UNC, Duke, NC State, and then smaller presence at like Meredith College, Peace, et cetera. Um, But we proved out it worked in the triangle and it started growing very fast after about a year as word of mouth got out. Um, It started spreading to a couple of other parts of North Carolina. And then I'd say in the last three months, it's now gone viral. Uh, it's spreading into unexpected places where it started blowing up at Emory in Atlanta. Um, it started blowing up all over South Carolina, College of Charleston, University of South Carolina. Um, it's now in Michigan at University of Michigan, Ohio State. Uh, it's expanding into Boston. Um, so we're basically seeing viral spread uh, of the platform at other universities and in those regions where people are trying to book care. I mean, we got people in Boston booking care. I just can't believe it. We've done zero awareness building. We actually, by the way, the company spends nothing on marketing and advertising. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. I'm very focused on that. You know, just like no ad buying at all. Um, I think it has to be grassroots and it has to be viral. Um, and that's how you can build a cool, you know, care ecosystem where you're spending nothing. Back to your point on kind of sustainability and scalability. So I legitimately believe that there should be no middleman fee between the consumer and the care provider. You know, I think that's how you build a great system that the care provider is doing all the work. And I believe that the real opportunity is making businesses pay. So if you build something that's B2B and B2C is free, so B2C is your strategy to B2B, I think then you can build a monster. And I think that's every care company has missed that opportunity that, you know, I think they you go back 30, 40 years ago, right? That why did not the care companies focus on the payer? You know, health insurers were growing. Medicare is a big player in this game. Large corporate employers are dealing with care needs, you know, family care needs of employees. And I think that the entire you know, care industry basically developed at a time thinking, oh, the payer isn't going to be interested in discussion. So as a result, the care industry has built their entire business models, optimizing for the top 1%, top 5% of society, just like super high price care, massive markups, pay the caregivers nothing, not go for scale. So I think that it's almost like they don't even want to play that game. But I think the biggest game in the care economy is, can you build a massive scale solution that large businesses and eventually government who are stakeholders in kind of the care game uh, want to partner with. And that involves low cost, affordable access and massive scale, quality, digital tracking, you know, kind of everything that is wrong with the care industry that can be done properly through CareIA and then monetized through health insurance plans, Medicare Advantage being critical large corporate employers who are going to be managing employees' family care needs. I've, I've experienced this myself firsthand and secondhand. Employees burn out when they're managing care. So a responsible employer you know, is going to be thinking about let's subsidize. And then long-term, really the holy grail is Medicare. I think Medicare over the next few years is going to start subsidizing home care. And guess what? They're not going to subsidize $35 an hour local Joshmo agency, right? They're going to subsidize a platform like Carriaya. So there's a race to build it and build it fast. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fascinating. So, I mean, do you see this being offered like as a, as a benefit essentially for large corporations? You know, hey, we're going to come in and provide this. 
you know, here's your, your gym membership, here's your care. Yeah. Yeah. You know, subscription. And yeah, uh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. We're already, we're already, we get a lot of inbounds. I mean, we're not super actively like pursuing those channels just because I'm just focused on building the consumer side of the offering right now, but we get a lot of inbounds from large corporate employers who see what we're building and they realize their workforce has family care needs. And for them, it's resulting in burnout of mid-career people who are like the people they can least afford to lose. And if you build an affordable solution, it's not that they don't even have to pay for the entire amount of care. Our care is already so affordable. But if the employer says, oh, you book care through Carrie and you're a nurse at Duke, you know, think about that's the case in point, actually. Many nurses we find are booking care through Carrie They can't afford a $35 an hour agency, right? At some point, their earnings are only X, right? So they prefer a $15 an hour option and they also prefer getting, you know, healthcare focused students. But, you know, if somebody like Duke Health were to say, okay, if you book, we'll give you 20%, you know, or whatever X amount, or we'll give you the first few thousand on the house. You know, those are ways that the employer can show, okay, I value my employee. I'm going to help them through their family care needs. So we are getting approached by employers as we build and scale this. We're getting approached by health insurance plans. Medicare Advantage is now over half of Medicare in the country is being administered through, you know, privately managed Medicare Advantage plans. And a lot of Medicare Advantage plans are starting to think both from a cost reduction benefit, where if you hook up somebody with some affordable home care, you reduce falls, you reduce hospitalizations, you know, you kind of improve health. So it's actually actually beneficial for them, you know, to subsidize care. And also from a marketing standpoint, you know, like Medicare Advantage is a very, very competitive market where Blue Cross North Carolina is selling a plan against Humana and against Aetna and whoever else, right? Cigna. So all these guys want you as today's 75 year old person to elect their plan. Um, and what better than to partner with a great consumer offering, carry out and say, we have this as a plan benefit, 10 hours a month carry out. So I think those are ample mon- opportunities to monetize on B2B, but that's not the focus um, of the company right now, but I think that's going to be long-term. And then the final point is advertising. You know, I think that the senior care market is massive and there's so many players in the market, including assisted living facilities, skilled nursing, um, even council, you know, kind of estate council, trust and wills, um, durable medical equipment. All of these industries have extremely high customer acquisition costs. So if you think about assisted living, like average assisted living in, you know, the Raleigh-Durham area, um, I think the monthly fees are around 7000 to like 10000 a month. And most of the time, for somebody who comes in and like converts, a lead that converts, they're, they're paying up to one month's fee. So thousands of dollars are being spent on customer acquisition, right? So imagine a great brand name platform that is at scale serving all these people before that level of need arises. You know, like kind of, you could just simply monetize on that alone and keep it free to the consumer the rest of the time. So I think there's like these elegant monetization structures that local care operators don't even think about because they're just used to like a 1980s way of doing care, like charge 30 bucks an hour, pay the caregiver 12 bucks an hour. You know, and I think that this is like a more, it's a harder way to build it initially, but it's a more elegant way to pull off something that could become like Google, you know, or Facebook, like to build a national massive monopoly that is free to the consumer tons of people are using and is monetizing through another channel, I think it's like enormously valuable. It could be, I mean, it could easily become like the biggest company in the care industry by mile. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it makes sense. And like you, you've said a couple of times, that's not the focus of, of, of the company right now because you really are kind of building out yeah. the, the, the platform as it is. So let me ask you this. Can you share any stories about how the platform's already impacting kind of people who are receiving care or the, even those who are giving the care? What are some of the stories that you can share about that? Yeah, yeah, that's great. I mean, I think great question. I mean, impacting on people is unbelievable. You know, I think on the people that are needing and receiving the care, and, and I'll try to be somewhat 
anonymized oh, yeah. from a client perspective because you know people are still going through these care challenges and many times when the care experience happens people don't talk about it um you know but we have you know these are just kind of uh profiles of people in the triangle and in North Carolina using it, but we have Lisa who's managing care for aging mother and mother has basically moved in, you know, during COVID, a lot of the midlife, um, you know, adult children of aging parents move their parents out of assisted living facilities or out of their homes and moved in to live with them. And, you know, in this case, like Lisa works her own job, has a pretty stressful, demanding job. Um, and her mother's, you know, kind of savings have dried up. So she's like funding and subsidizing, subsidizing mom's care. So I think in that case, the experience has been awesome of like could not afford agencies. It was really rationing care of how much you could get. And with Carrie she's able to get full care help all the time, very affordable rates and build amazing relationships, um, you know, with the student caregivers. I think there's been cases of people, you know, similar to that. You know, we've had um, a client, Liz, also a midlife uh, caregiver of uh, elder mother who was in end of life hospice care. Actually, um, mom passed away eventually, but for a few months ended up getting care through Carrie and love the experience so much that invited the regular student caregivers to the mom's funeral to talk about life stories. And, you know, it was like, wow, some of the stories that mom said during the kind of last few weeks of life to the students were like things she didn't even know about, you know? So I think that probably the like number one thing we've observed from some of these is that the intergenerational relationship that's forming is extremely unique. And it's almost like people are not used to that at all um, in, in society. I think when people are interacting with the care industry, they're not expecting my elder parent is going to get care from somebody that could be like their grandkids. So a lot of people say it feels like grandkids. That's probably like the number one bit of feedback we get. And I think for the students, it's the same. You know, it's many of these students, you know, you got 20 year olds, 22 year olds that are in school, they're responding to health careers. You know, when was the last time in the last year that they interacted with anyone that was above 70? That wasn't their own grandparent, you know, probably zero, you know? So for, I think many of these students, they're learning kind of what is it like to be older? What is it like to have a neurological disease? What is it like to, you know, be a cancer patient? What is it like to be on dialysis? You know, what's it like to kind of have a health condition that's chronic and need other people to help you and take care of you? And critically, you know, not just what is it like during the 15 minutes when you're visiting the doctor, you know, many of the students will work at the hospital or work at a clinic, but you only see a very like surface level snapshot of the person's life when you're seeing them for 10 minute, 15 minute shifts, you know, at, at the hospital, if you're like a nurse aide, um, or at a clinic here, you're seeing their entire life, you know, what's their day to day, like for eight hours a day, days and weeks on end, you know, what is it like within the family? And I think that that really, from the student standpoint, it's building a tremendous amount of empathy. So we've similarly had like student stories. I've been, you know, we have a, a caregiver, Ashlyn, who is, you know, first generation, uh, college student, you know, first in our family to go to college at UNC. And she did care. And I'm happy to say I wrote a recommendation letter for med school. She's now at UNC med school, still doing care. And actually had developed a relationship with an elderly man um, who's suffering from Parkinson's. And, you know, his uh, son has been managing his care for several years. And interestingly enough, as I learned, he's in an assisted living facility, by the way. So talk about care gap. These assisted living facilities are supposed to be providing care. But the son was like, look, every time I visit my dad, it's staffed like seven to one, eight to one. My dad's just by himself in his room watching TV. You know, the attendant is just going down the hall, bathing and toileting and doing nothing one on one with anyone because it doesn't have the time. You know, it's understaffed. So, um, you know, so the son was like, OK, let's get care through, you know, carry out, send students to hang out with my dad every day and just kind of do everything from take him from walk, play board games, flip through photo albums, learn his life story. And that care is still going on by the student who then is now at med school. You know, so it's like I think the empathy and the relationship building is just phenomenal on both sides. And I think that's something that is sorely lacking in the traditional, you know, kind of care industry. So I'd say that's probably been the most fun thing to see is just like 
to be the facilitator of all these relationships that otherwise would have never happened. Well, and I think it does just provide such a good perspective for for the students that you'd be working with. Because to your point, I, you know, I don't think we really, until you've walked through that kind of care for an aging parent or for somebody else, you really don't have a sense of, of what that is like and how even like minor tasks in the day can be super challenging because you got to worry about this person that you're trying to take care of. And so to have that perspective, I, I just, it shifts, shifts mindsets. It seems like. Totally agree. I think it's inspiring a lot of people to go into careers. They might not have otherwise thought about, you know, that some people are like, okay, I might go into like family medicine now because I see the need. Some people are thinking about going into geriatrics, palliative care, hospice care. And I think that some of the students are like realizing that, Hey, there's a big unmet need, even on the clinical side of like helping this population. I think the country has Obviously, we have a shortage of healthcare workers, but we certainly have a shortage of healthcare workers focusing on this population, and the demand is about to skyrocket. So, I think it's cool to kind of inspire people to go into these fields. So, you know, we've kind of talked about like the level of care that can be provided, and, and obviously, these are not like nurses at this point in time, yeah. or maybe some of them are, but that's not what they're providing through care. Is there is there a level of care that they that you can't provide at this point, or uh, how, how do you think about what it is that you're providing? Yeah, great question. I mean, we stick to all non-medical care. So, you know, it's all low acuity companion care. So um, through Caria, we, uh, and unfortunately, it's like one of the saddest parts of the job, we have to turn away and sadly turn away people to the care agencies, which we don't really love. But it's like, hey, they're the only ones, you know, kind of fulfilling the higher acuity needs. Um, and, you know, we until, you know, until we scale, hopefully at one point, we'll come up with a higher acuity solution. But I think it's just logistically very difficult to manage at this point. Um, so we provide just low acuity care, you know, so if anyone needs help with like, uh, bathing, injections, you know, insulin injections, um, colostomy bag, uh, feeding tubes, things like that, you know, which a lot of people do need, you know, we have to turn that away. So this is predominantly for companion level care, which believe it or not, you know, according to a lot of research in AARP, like that's 60% of the care need is companion level care. And by the way, I, I actually forgot to mention that the reason Carrie is starting to scale all over the country is because we just got backed by ARP. So ARP oh, nationally okay. has, has a program called Age Tech Collaborative where they select 10 startups across the country that they think are doing something innovative uh, towards kind of the aging field. And proud to say Carrie was selected as part of the program. And also proud to say we're the only caregiving company as part of the program. Everything else is a device, you know, so there's like, um, new age hearing aids and there's other devices for turning your lights on and off. So carry is the only caregiving company. So it's been kind of cool to get that recognition, but I think that people from around the country are like hearing about our innovation. And we're also selected by the RRF foundation, which is like the retirement research foundation out of Chicago as one of the top six companies innovating in caregiving across America. So I think that a buzz is building. And what's funny is that we have not done care in these areas. They're just kind of observing what's going on. And they're observing that this is a building a sustainable, scalable solution um, that could have a tremendous social impact and financial impact on a lot of their members. You know, and, and I think that kind of the, I, what I failed to discuss is that there's a structural caregiver shortage in society right now. You know, so that even the traditional care industry does not have enough caregivers to staff people. So by coming up with this novel, low cost, high quality solution and expanding the care workforce, everybody is now jumping on. Um, for the ride, you know, the, um, on top of that, we just got invited to the North Carolina State Government Advisory Committee on Aging. So there's a master plan on aging and health and human services like the head of the aging division invited us on the steering committee uh, because they were like, you guys are solving a major structural problem in the state of lack of access to affordable care and caregiver shortages. So I think it's kind of cool to see that 
the external signals from very large organizations, including government, AARP, large foundations that are managing care for very large populations. I think Atrium Health, I forgot to mention that, the largest hospital system in the Carolinas, um, selected us as the winner of their Health Equity Innovation Challenge actually gave us a grant, which is super cool. So it wasn't just a win. It was included some funding help, but it was like, there was just like, can't believe you guys are solving a problem that many of their patients need. So I think it's cool to see that as we scale the solution, recognition from many very large participants um, across kind of the government and healthcare field that something like this is like sorely needed. So yeah, it's been really cool to, you know, cool to see the impact. Tell me a little bit about kind of the technology side. So how do you see kind of been a lot of changes in technology just in like the past couple of years. And how, how do you see those changes impacting the services you're providing? Huge, huge. I see it as a massive, massive opportunity. You know, I think that caregiving is like one of the last frontiers of technology. I mean, the fact that we're building a tech enabled care connecting platform, and it's like, wow, this is a genius idea in 2023. You know, it's kind of like laughable when you think about it. Then the next thing that's laughable was, okay, the technology in the home, you know, like, why isn't their technology being used in these care sessions? And partly it's because I mentioned that the traditional care workforce is, is not that tech savvy. So I think that there's an enormous opportunity for care to really build almost like, you know, kind of use the analogy of Uber of caregiving, but really almost like an Amazon-like of caregiving where we have the touch point into the home that you book through tech, but guess what? We're going to bring a bunch of tech to you. So, you know, and so we've been developing like this generative AI has just been awesome. We're like, great opportunity to rapidly build tools on top of it. So we've been developing um, personalized chatbots for managing nutrition and meal planning um, using AI for uh, people with chronic conditions. So I'm taking care of John, who's an 84-year-old diabetic with dementia. What kind of meal plan should I prepare? And, you know, spitting out a bunch saying, okay, no, John doesn't like carrots. Okay, here's a bunch of, you know, so like, and this, this, you know, sounds simplistic, but it's actually pretty impactful because the nurses and social workers are trying to do this stuff over the phone or over Zoom. And it's not really working and it's creating a ton of burden on them. So by college students kind of equipped with this tech, you can make a big impact on people's health. Um, and that's very valuable. And over time, clinical care systems might you know, want to pay for that. Uh, but worst case, some fixed cost to develop and you just give it away for free, get tons of people using it and loving it. Even this life story stuff I mentioned, you know, we observed a lot of students were capturing life stories of these elders and then some of them were passing away. And we're like, okay, the students get invited to the funeral. They're sharing their story. Guess what? Now we're working on an AI enabled life story app that students can go into these sessions through Q&A prompts, capture and record with everyone's permission, the life story narrative of the elder. And that is then preserved in a digital format for the family, you know, after they pass. And for the student, it's like something to do. For the elder, it's therapeutic. It's something to do. You know, everybody loves to talk about their life, things that have happened. So, you know, these are things that technology tools and like the democratization of AI is making it easier to build and build fast. And it's not rocket science, but this industry is so low tech that uh, you can wow people with like putting stuff out, stuff out there like this in the market, you know? So I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, for some reason that, that, that last part that you talked about, about ca- collecting some of these stories, I mean, I, I just seems so hugely important because again, you lose so much in general, generational wisdom as, as people pass away. And, a lot of times it takes so much time to kind of collect that, to be there, to hear the stories, to hear totally have those conversations. And so if you have somebody who's there providing the care already, what an opportunity it is to kind of preserve yeah. that. I mean, think about anyone in your life. You know, I wish my grandfather's life story was recorded somewhere, you know, like I kind of remember conversations and everything, but it would have been awesome to like, if you had a, care- a caregiver having captured all that stuff that you could just sit in there and listen to once in a while, you know? So, yeah. And I think it's very therapeutic for the people actually when they're doing it, you know, so we're beta testing that tool right now, but like when, 
students are doing it, when the person is telling it, I think it's therapeutic for both sides. So it's kind of like you can build so much. I mean, another idea we have is uh, fall prevention. So here I'll, I'll tell you. So every caregiver has a cell phone camera, right? Smartphone. I actually have one of the older ones, iPhone 7. But, you know, nowadays uh, caregivers have, you know, the newest model. But basically, point being that the fall risk assessment right now in this aging population, right? Falls are one of the leading cause of ER visits and hospitalizations and eventual loss of independence. Um, well, how is fall risk assessment working right now? You go to your family medicine doc or geriatric doc once a year, and they do what's called a timed up and go test. They have you sit in a chair, get up, walk 10 feet, walk 10 feet back and sit down. And they, with a stopwatch, they measure. If it's more than 15 seconds, they say you're high risk. If it's less than 15 seconds, okay, normal. I mean, that's what we're going to do in 2023. I mean, think about what the, where the technology is at. So it's people are not bringing tech into this stuff. So, you know, we developed a fairly straightforward and simple cell phone camera based computer vision detection of what's your center of balance, gait speed, any irregularity in walking, shuffling. Not going to say it's rocket science, but the accuracy is much higher than just simply a timed test. So that's another type of tool that we're launching with student caregivers. And it's like, could that impact families? Yes. Like a lot of families realize when the person they're taking care of is starting to become a little more at risk of falls, but overwhelming majority of them don't do anything until after a fall and ER visit happens. So if we could give people a proactive warning signal that, hey, we've been taking care of your mom or dad or your spouse for the last four months. And in the last week or two, something is off. You guys need to kind of keep an eye on it, get more care, get it checked out, whatever. What can you imagine if you prevent ER visits, prevent falls, you know, prevent hospitalizations? Some of the statistics are like mind boggling. Like if you break your hip at that age, 50% chance that is now your loss of independence is from that event. So the social impact from this stuff is like enormous. And obviously the financial impact of the healthcare system is enormous. So um, these are like not rocket science things, but we're, we're going like nuts on tech development right now because that, I mean, obviously we're, we're growing very fast and scaling the current thing, but I'm always like thinking about what's next. And I think what's next is making this large student workforce into an army of like community health workers that are the frontline intervention going to all these homes. So as you see that and you see the opportunities, what would you say are the kind of the biggest challenges facing the company in the next 12 months or next three years? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think probably the biggest challenge is scaling into new markets while keeping the same focus on quality. You know, that we have been obsessive quality focused. And I think that inevitably, as you start scaling a product and scaling a tech enabled platform, you know, quality may slip. So you have to be very careful and you have to design systems and incentives in the right way to make sure quality stays very high. So that's something we've been kind of really obsessing over. Um, I think the risk is also, I would say, premature monetization. You know, so as in the conversations right now, we have with a lot of investors who are inbounding, a lot of venture sees what we're doing, even angels see what we're doing. They're like, okay, this could scale everywhere. You know, you have to be, I feel like there's an investor market fit, just like there's a product market fit. They have to make sure the people that back you and kind of get along for the ride are also of the same mindset that let's build a great product that is going for kind of maximum market share, maximum spread and monetization through B2B and don't kind of push you to monetize B2C faster, which I think that we could do if we wanted to, but I think it would kind of cap um, the scale potential. So I think that's another big challenge. It's just got to be careful, like kind of who you're working with and, you know, find the right people, you know, who kind of want to bet the same way. I'd say risk slash challenge is kind of how we interact um, with health insurance plans and employers. You know, I think that doing it the right way with B2B partners, I think will enable massive scaling and massive um, reducing of the care burden on individual families, you know, that are booking care. 
but I think it has got to be done in the right way. So, um, yeah, I'd say those are probably some of the key things we're focusing on. And it's interesting you mentioned that about investors, because I think it's something that we've talked a lot about with, with, with different founders on, on the podcast is how important it is to, to really think about who, who you're bringing into the, the cap table and taking money from. And, and part of it is, I think, taking in that investment dollar just creates new pressures and, and kind of can push that focus a little bit as, as somebody else is coming in to say, hey, you really got to start making money. Now is the time to start doing this. Now is the time to start doing this. And, and that really has somebody kind of talking in your ear that has a risk at least of kind of pulling your focus. Totally so agree. Really totally agree. So important to have that kind of alignment. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that that the lesson on that end is just build something where you don't need investors and it's a nice to have, not a need to have, you know, and I would say that we're building in a way that we get flooded with inbound requests and it's like, we'll take it when it's a right fit, but we don't need it. And we could easily just keep building without it. Um, but I think that's been kind of one of the big learnings. And I would say that's been actually one of the interesting adjustments for my end too, is that, you know, I, you know, I grew up in North Carolina, but I spent most of my professional career in New York City. And um, obviously, a lot of my New York contacts are also on the West Coast. Um, and then now I'm back building this. And I'd say that I've observed regional differences, even how investors think about commercialization, monetization, scale potential. Um, so I'd say, especially in the region we're in, and trying to pull off something like what I'm trying to pull off with Carriaya, where like, this could be a juggernaut in a massive TAM market, you know, that if you're trying to build, I want to build something that I can IPO, you know, one day and keep running, you know, I think that, of course, there'll be a lot of liquidity events along the way. But something that if you're aiming for the moon, and you're like, hey, could it be a $10 billion, $100 billion company, I think you have to make sure the investor is also not looking to hit singles and doubles, you know, and I think that I think that and I hate to say it in a bad way, it's not that we're like taking enormous risk or anything. But in a sense, if you're swinging for the fences, I think the investor also needs to be swinging for the fences and like view like what is the maximum possible outcome. And I think that historically, there's been more of a tendency to do that out of kind of California and New York, because I think people have seen those hits, you know, and I think that maybe there's been less of a tendency historically out of kind of like the North Carolina, Southeast ecosystem. But I think I think and I hope that's changing. Um, but I think that it's also like when you do something to put it on the map, then I think other people start you know, kind of like shifting behavior. So I think if we would pull it off, I mean, it'd be awesome. Or like, I think it's going to be the biggest company ever to come out of North Carolina. And like, I think it'd be awesome to like, especially I think North Carolina has a such a tremendous record of success in B2B tech. But I think like what put Austin on the map was B2C tech of Uber. You know, I think Airbnb, obviously San Francisco is already on the map, but nonetheless, you know, I think when you have a B2C monster because of how big these markets are, um, that's when everyone's like recognizing like, oh, that's a startup ecosystem. So I actually think kind of the dream for this would be to pull off something like this that so many consumers and families and caregivers around the country are aware of. And you're like, oh, yeah, that came out of North Carolina. And it's like then one, obviously, just from a financial hit perspective, investors would start thinking, hey, huge hits can come out of here. And then I also think that it highlights to everyone in the country, the startup ecosystem, which I think B2B sometimes doesn't highlight because most consumers don't touch it. Well, here's the shift in both the care industry and the, the local <laughs> entrepreneurial yeah. industry. Yeah. So, so we are the Founder Shares podcast. And so I always like to ask our guests, you know, if there was one piece of advice that you wanted to share with somebody who's either thinking about starting a company or is kind of in the trenches now, what would that advice be? Uh, whew, good question. Uh, do it. You know, just, yeah, just do it. I mean, it's like, you'll figure it out, you know, along the way, but there's nothing like just kind of jumping in both feet first. I think never underestimate the power of just like creative problem solving and human potential. And I think sometimes, you know, it tends to surprise myself, but I also, in a lot of people we work with, I'm always surprised that like, 
sometimes you're shocked at what people are capable of when they're put in this situation, you know? So I think, yeah, I would say if anyone's even thinking about it, yeah, just like, you know, just believe in yourself, take the plunge and you'll figure it out, you know? And I think most, most people do figure it out, you know, when they're kind of in, in the heat of the game. So yeah, I would say it's very exciting. It's very rewarding. Um, I think people can make a lot of impact. So yeah, I would like to encourage as many people as possible. Just jump in. That's great. Uh, I love it. So how can our, our listeners connect with you, connect with Karyaya? You know, if there's providers out there, if there are people who have this need, you know, how, how do they find yeah. out more about the company? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, we um, obviously you can hit me up on LinkedIn. It's probably the most preferred like communication channel. So, you know, Neil, N-E-A-L, Keisha, um, S-H-A-H on LinkedIn. Um, and then you can also hit us up. Our main website is consumer facing. Anyone can send messages. So carryaya.org, C-A-R-E-Y-A-Y-A.org. And then anyone can send a message to support at carryaya.org. That's our main, you know, kind of communication channel. Everyone's um, checking that. Um, so, yeah, happy to help anyone. Would love to collaborate with um, any healthcare ecosystem partners. If there's any um, execs at insurance uh, plans listening, or even large employers listening, um, I think I might even have to pitch this to Hutch uh, from an employee benefits perspective. Uh, but yeah, anyone that's listening would love to chat, collaborate. And we've been kind of building it mostly in stealth mode for a while, but it's starting to become you know out there, um, you know, and it's starting to get a lot more traction. So I, yeah, hopefully, you know, we can uh, find some people through this that want to collaborate with us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Founder Shares podcast. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, be sure to check out our team at hutchlaw.com. That's hutchlaw.com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. The show was edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and thanks for listening to the Founder Shares podcast.